So this morning is January 22nd. It is 2012. Our message this morning is Hashem. This is Hebrew for the name. If you're taking notes, that's H-A, then a space, S-H-E-M. Hashem, the name. I was asked one time why we do so many Hebrew things in this church. It is because this book is an Eastern book. It comes from the land of Semitic peoples. We are a Western people. If you wanted to learn about Mexico, who better to ask than a resident of Mexico? Many things that we learn in the Bible come from the culture of the Bible. When we say certain things, they have different definitions to people in different areas of the world. And it's important that we get a Hebraic perspective because Jesus, our King, is King of the Jews. He is the Jewish Messiah. In fact, when his mother called him in for dinner, when his brothers spoke to him or his sister spoke to him, they never in their entire life imagined that he would be called Jesus. Or if you're from the deep south like me, Jesus. They never imagined that his name was Yeshua. Now, I'm not here to correct the way that you say it or I say it or anybody else says it. Praise God. He knows our hearts cry. And I met... Jorge's in here somewhere, but I met him as Jorge, and he introduces himself as George at other times. However you met somebody might be how you think of their name, and that's okay. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that there is something special about learning about the culture that Jesus was raised in and the setting that the Bible takes place in. Can y'all say amen? amen? Turn with me to Exodus 3. In the third chapter of Exodus, we'll begin our message today on Ha-Shem, the name. Come on, the rest of you getting there? (laughs) Now Moses, or Moshe if you prefer, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Come on now, far side. This is a Hebrew word called a har, and it doesn't just mean far side. It means whatever your side, whatever side you're on, a har is the other side. It's the back side. It's the greatest distance. It's the furthest place from where you are right now. Moses was tending a flock, and God called him to tend that flock on the other side of a desert. And it was there in that place that God began to meet with him. The Lord is not far from us, but he often causes you to go through a little bit of a desert so that you can begin to realize your need for him. The Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, is the most desolate looking mountain you have ever seen in your life. I've been there a couple times, and it literally looks like copper and sand mixed and came out of the earth. It, it, It burns your eyes a little bit in the bright sun, You feel as if you've been transplanted to the surface of the moon. It was in a dry place where Moses was painfully aware of not only his need, but what's he doing? He's out there caring for others, right? This is the place where God began to deal with Moses. And it says that an angel appeared to him in a bush. And then what do we all know about this bush? Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses, you have needs. You've just crossed the desert. You know that you need water. Your sheep have needs. They need pasture lands. You are in constant need. 
But I'm going to speak to you about a God who has no needs. He doesn't exist at someone else's pleasure. He doesn't exist because He was created. He does not exist for anything other than He exists. The Bible does not answer the origin of God. It's simply God is the origin of all things. And the God of glory, the Lord of glory, begins to speak to Moses in a place where Moses can hear. He's removed distractions. He's removed everything except Moses' awareness of need. My goodness, where would the church be today if we knew what we really needed? But we're not very well in a desert, are we? We're in padded chairs. We're in air-conditioned rooms. We are in nicely decorated places. We're in everything that is comfortable. And then we wonder why we can't hear God. Then we have our iPods in and our video games going and our favorite TV shows that may not be God's favorite TV shows. And we wonder why we can't hear God. Then our concern is not for caring for sheep and recognizing their need. Our concern has become caring for ourselves in our prayers about what we need. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. It's all I ever hear. Me, Johnny, Susie, us four, no more. Selfish Christianity. This is the state. This is the landscape. If we were going to give a state of the union for the church, this is what it would sound like, at least on this continent. But it is not this way all over the world. There are places where people wake up so painfully aware of their need that it is burning inside of their stomach. There are places where people cry themselves to sleep in prayer each night, asking the God of heaven to meet their need. They recognize that other people call their land God forsaken. And I want to tell you, no, it is not God forsaken. It is church forsaken. Because the last thing that our king said to us before he ascended was, go into all the world, and yet we sit on our salvation and our hands. God begins to speak to us when we are aware of our need, and then he points us in a direction. It tends to be on the far side of a desert. I don't know whether you're in the middle of the desert, you're on the front side or the back side, but wherever you are, our king is calling us to an acknowledgement. He exists all by Himself. When the Lord saw that He had gone over to look, God called to Him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Come on now, say, the Lord knows my name. It's an interesting thing, the Lord knows Moses' name, but Moses does not know the Lord's name. Come on, there is a time in our life where we have to realize something. Even a child is known by their actions. This is not popular in our culture today. We said the Lord knows my heart despite what I do. We tell our children, do what I say and not what I do. The gospel is based on a Hebraic concept that is completely different than that. The Hebraic concept is do not believe me unless I do what my father does. The Hebraic concept is you know a tree by its fruit. The Hebraic concept is what a man is in his heart is displayed in his actions towards other people. That is the Hebraic concept. So Moses is approached and God says, Moshe, Moshe. He knows his name. Moses means drawn out of the water because it was God's plan that he would be drawn out of the water. The same way you were drawn out of the sea of humanity to your own burning bush experience. But Moses doesn't know the Lord's name. In the Bible, name is called Shem. And it does not simply mean the way that you pronounce something. My mother's name is Jan, or Janice, or to her mama and daddy, Janice Lynn, right? 
Those three things all sounded a little different, don't they? They're similar. Jan, Janice, Janice Lynn. But they are different. It's a different pronunciation, and yet we're talking about the same person, are we not? Yes. In the Bible, it's not about the pronunciation. In the Bible, it is about the character of the person you're speaking about. A name has to do with your authority, your body of work, your reputation. The Lord knows Moses' name. He knows him. He knows about his body of work. He knows all about his character. The Lord has examined him and he knows who he is. But Moses does not know who the Lord is. He's heard what others have said about him. His forefathers called him El Shaddai, the God who is enough. Hebrew El Shaddai, the God who is enough. El Shaddai, we say in English. They called him Adonai. Owner, master, controller. They called him all kind of beautiful things. But Moses is about to have a very personal revelation, not just of what people call God, but what his authority and his body of work and his reputation will be to Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are, you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Our natural state is human beings until God intervenes in our life and does for us what we cannot do is that even being drawn to the presence of God, we can only come so far. It requires us to begin to throw things off of our life that would hinder us because they are common, vulgar, maybe even unholy, and we serve a holy God. This is why the kingdom message starts with the word repent, always. It is the beginning of the kingdom message. You cannot be in the kingdom without having repented. It's like starting the Boston Marathon from some other state. It won't work. You may be running well enough, but you're in the wrong race. Repent means simply to pick a brand new direction, whichever one the Lord is showing you. <clears throat> shed whatever He tells you to shed. Do whatever He tells you to do. It's a change in ownership of your life. God begins to speak to Moses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. It's a funny thing. We get our eyes on our problems and off of the Lord, and we forget that the Lord is Lord over all of the earth. There is no thing that has happened that he has not seen. A terrible injustice done to you when you were young in a very dark place that you think someone got away with. The Lord has indeed seen the misery of his people. Amen. Some terrible action at a party where everybody drunk too much. Say that man was never brought to justice. No, there is a day of justice coming because the Lord has indeed seen the misery of his people. Friends, on a totally beneficial but side note, you do not have to keep track of wrongs done to you. You do not have to keep track because the Lord of hosts will keep a better record than you will. This is especially beneficial for you husbands and wives. Things that have happened eight years ago, seven years ago, seven minutes ago, might need to be let go because you both pledged your lives to the king. And He will keep track of it all for you. To the extent that we begin to record these things and keep them ourselves, 
like one wise young lady said, is drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It has a negative effect on our walk. The Lord didn't say, Moses, have you seen the misery of the people? Have you recorded it? He said, I have indeed seen it. Watch where we go with this. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. The Lord of glory is concerned about people's lives. He's concerned. This means the young man in Liberia that woke up without any food, the Lord is concerned about him. This means that the young man here in Houston whose father does not love him and his mother is drug addicted, the Lord loves him. Y'all know I love Judah. What would you think if Judah was in need? How many of you would help Judah? Raise your hand if you would help Judah if he was in need. Well, what happens when it's not my child that you can see, but the Lord's child who you're yet to meet? Why are we any less willing? The Lord has indeed seen the misery of His people, and He is concerned. Now, if this is where the gospel stopped, it would be little better than Buddhism, little better than any of the world religions. Lots of people are concerned when they see injustice. Actually, Hinduism is kind of strange in that regard. When they see injustice, they figure you probably deserved it from another life, and they feel completely unmoved to do anything about it. The gospel is radically changing India, starting at the southern tip, and it's moving north and west, and it will eventually move into Pakistan and move into Iran and Iraq. The Indian and Chinese Christians will beat us into the Islamic countries, largely because we're comfortable and don't want to go, and they're set on fire and cannot wait to give their lives for the gospel. I don't intend to stand back and wait for someone else to do the work God's been preparing me to do all of my life. I pray you're of the same heart. If God was just concerned, this would be little better than any world religion. But verse 8 separates Christianity from all others. And when I say Christianity, I mean that extension of Judaism. That completed thing that says all 39 books of the Old Testament are anointed and inspired. And they all pointed towards one Messiah. And the 27 books of the Newer Testament complete this revelation as one continuous message about God. I don't see those religions as distinct. I just see some as incomplete and others as complete. And there is salvation in no name other than Yeshua. It cannot be done. But this great faith that our Bible speaks of is characterized by this verse. So I have come down to rescue them. I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptian and to bring them up. We do not serve a God that says, if you can climb this mountain to me, then I will help you. We do not serve a God that says, Keithan, you have fallen in a hole. Try not to do it again. We do not serve a God who looks at our circumstances and says, oh, that's really bad. We serve a God who sees it, is concerned, goes down to meet you in that circumstance and raises you back up to where He is. Our God is concerned enough to do something about the problem. If we're going to wear His name, we must share His attributes. 
It is not enough as a church for us to know that there is a problem. It is not enough for us as a church to be concerned about the problem. We have to be willing to leave our estate to go to wherever the problem is and help the people out of the problem. We're not a humanitarian organization. We're a theocracy led by the living God. We're not there just to feed their bodies. We have something that will free their very souls. We cannot sit back and watch our television sets while the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Say, well, we don't have to go to foreign lands to reach people. You're right. Start with your neighbors. Where are you in that progress? How long have you been living there? Have you ever talked to them about Jesus? How about the man that sits next to you at work? How can we see their problem and not offer the, the cure for cancer that we have? How could we stand and watch somebody with a tumor and we know the answer to the problem and not share it? Well, Eric, that is different. That's so obvious and it's a physical thing. Do you really believe that the physical things are less real than the spiritual things? Are more real? See, we have found a solution to the world's problem. We cannot hold it. We cannot sit back on it. If you like the internet codes, the internet language, it needs to be open source. It's free for everybody. It is not proprietary. It's not owned by the Baptist denomination. It's not owned by the Pentecostal denomination. It's not owned by the Assemblies of God. It is owned by the Lord of glory. It is His name. It is His character. It is His authority. It's His body of work. He rescues. He rescues. When we are the people called by His name, it should be because we rescue up out of the land into a good land, a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. This word oppressing is lachatz. Lachatz is the same word. Y'all remember the story of Balaam? Because I'm going to read it if you don't. Raise your hand if you know the story of Balaam and his donkey. Alright, if you do not know that story, you can talk to any person who have their hands raised. This will train, train them to share the gospel. Balaam was riding a donkey and the donkey was trying to get Balaam to stop. There was an angel in the way and the donkey had more spiritual insight than Balaam had. <laughs> I'm pausing to refrain from my normal jokes on that subject. Amen. So the donkey, the donkey began to crush Balaam's feet against the canyon walls. That word crush is lachatz. What the Egyptians were doing to the Israelites in the story of the Exodus is a downward crushing pressure. God had seen this heavy weight that had been laid on their backs. And he was concerned enough to go rescue them. Did the scripture say God would rescue them? No. Yes. Yes? So I have come down to rescue them. How did God rescue them? He sent a man. If God is going to do work upon the earth, we cannot stand back and say, one day Jesus will do it. We cannot stand back and say, if God wants it done, God will do it. When God wants something done, He has a body present on the earth, and that is called you. 
You are supposed to be his hands and feet. If he's going to do something on the earth, he's going to do it through a man. By man, I mean mankind, you beautiful, anointed, powerful women of God. Amen. Give me an amen for Deborah. Amen. Amen. Give me an amen for Mary. Amen. You know, we don't have to struggle for equality. God made you absolutely equal when he chose to be born into the world through you. There's no struggle for equality. There are no victims in Christianity. We're victors. How could you be a victim of anything? The world would like to make you a victim of racism, a victim of bigotry, a, a victim of sexism, ageism. We've got so many isms. When you're in Christ, there's either those people that have crossed the desert and have met with God and now have a purpose in their life, or those who are still in the desert. There's only two kinds of people in this world, the lost and the saved. That's all there is. That's all there is. There are those in the desert and those who have been saved from the ravages of the desert. Oh, they're still in the same surrounding, but now they have a purpose, a provider, a God with a very great name and character. Yes. So now go! I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Oh, how I wish I could get it through to my friends who are pastors. These people do not belong to you. They do not exist to support you. They are not there so that you can have a nice life and a nice retirement and a pretty building to preach in. They are the Lord's people. And we're supposed to reach down to help up. We're supposed to rescue. We're supposed to do whatever it takes. In fact, Jesus went so far to say, you see the wolf coming and you don't protect the sheep, it's because you're a hireling and care nothing for the sheep. When pastors preach about that, Matthew, they're always talking about someone else. But it's worth examining our own lives, isn't it? If I know the risk is in trouble and I do nothing, that makes me a hireling. If I know Buddy's in trouble and I do nothing, that makes me a hireling. If I turn this building into a spiritual safety deposit box to keep only those who are saved in here, only those who are already well. Can you imagine if a hospital looked at you and said, no, you're sick. We only want well people here. Unless you pay. And attend regularly. And are pretty people. That take, look good on TV. How absurd. How absurd. But I better not get on that subject. Y'all rather talk about the Word than the State of the Union, wouldn't you? Yes. It's an amazing thing, though. When you read the Word, it brings you into direct contrast with everything that you see. If Paul said not all Israel is Israel, then what would he say about the American church? Oh my goodness. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go? Friends, this is the wrong question. When God has called us to do something, we're not to ask, who am I? That is not the question. We don't go in our own strength. Ryan does not show up and say, you are saved, for I am here. Ryan! Ryan may have said that at one point in his life, but not now that he has met the living God. You give Moses just a little bit of time, though. One thing I've learned about the Jewish people, they ask good questions. His first question was off base. He says, who am I? But by the 14th verse, he's asking the right question. Who are you? <laughs> you told me to go. I need to know your name, man. <laughs> you seem to know me pretty well, but what am I going to tell them? You know, the last time I was there, I didn't have such a good experience, you know? 
He didn't have a problem hitting in his closet, Michael. He hid it in the sand. It killed an Egyptian. God sending someone who was a murderer to be a rescuer of men. It seems that when you meet the living God, there's a character change that is required. A character change that is empowered. A character change that the living God anoints. It's there in this story that I would like to pick up about Hashem. Turn to verse 13 with me. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is the name? I'm sorry, what is his name? You young people, does that have a certain R. Kelly ring? Say my name. I got that wrong, didn't I, Kelsey? I should stay out of pop culture. Pop culture for me ended in 1993, David. And I'm not going to lie, I still have a members-only jacket in my closet. Destiny's Child, say my name. Lindsay, you can come finish this message. Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moshe. Elohim said to Moshe. I am who I am. Well, thanks, that clears it up. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You have to consider his situation, though. Moses has just crossed the desert. Moses has just done it with some thirsty sheep. Moses has just seen a bush that was on fire but was not being consumed. And now the Lord speaks to him. In Hebrew, this is God. Hey, Vav, hey. Yod, hey, Vav, hey. That means nothing to us, does it? It's a bunch of consonants. When we say Y-H-W-H, some of you begin to go, Oh, I think I know what he's talking about. We insert some vowels. If we say Yahweh, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's God's proper name. I don't think the sense in which God was speaking to him is, look, here's my proper name and how it's pronounced. I think he's speaking to him in a more Hebraic sense. This is my nature. This is my character, my body of work, my reputation. Who sent you? The one who doesn't need anything. Let, let me give you a list of ways that Bible scholars define this name. Let me do it a different way. Let me tell you what Colossians 1.17 says. This is a Hebraic man writing in Greek, trying to explain to people that think like us who God is. And in Colossians 1.17, he says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Thanks, that clears it up too. He's the one that is before everything, He's in everything, and He holds everything together. Now let's go back to the Hebrew. Let's go back to YHWH and hear what the scholars say about it. One definition was, He causes to be. Another definition was, He creates. Still a third definition is, <clears throat> He is. Hey, what's your name? He is. Another, I am. Another, I will. One scholar wrote an entire treatise on the subject. He found inscriptions in the 2nd and 3rd millennia B.C. that led him to believe that his name simply means He. If you were trying to summarize all of that to a people that had no understanding of Hebrew, you might just say, He's the one that's before everything. The one that's holding everything together. He is the essence of life. He's everything that was ever needed. And He's it all by Himself. He is raw life. Now, 
people who've been debating this stuff for thousands of years. I don't have a definitive answer to you today, but when Moses wants to know who am I to go to them, he said, you tell them that the very center of everything, the self-existent, the one who was not derived from any other source, he's the one that sent you. And they called that Yahweh. Now as Yahweh began to be used and circulated as a name of God, because Hebrews think in terms of function. They began to use His name a lot and they added things onto it like Yahweh Yireh, the Lord my provider. Yahweh my provider. Yahweh Nisi, uh, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Rapha, uh, the Lord is my healer. They began to add on description and description and description to describe the one who was beyond description. 6,209 times in the Hebraic text, it's the word Yahweh. Now, they also had abbreviations for His name. Yah. <laughs> Yah also means God. It's short for Yahweh. When you add all of the abbreviations for God, there's another 619 of them. We get to 6,828 times in 39 books. Yahweh is referred to. This is excluding El Shaddai, Adonai, all the Elohim, all of those other terms for deity. Because God most prominently wanted to display something. I'm the center of everything. I exist all by myself. An underived existence, a raw essence, through whom and for whom all things exist. In the book of Corinthians, in the 8th chapter and 6th verse, also in the book of Hebrews, in the 2nd chapter and 10th verse, that phrase, for whom and through whom. All things exist. That's the guy that Moses met. How do you describe something like that? For whom and through whom everything exists. The Bible speaking of Yeshua being the incarnation of the fullness of the deity. Even goes so far as to say he holds everything together that is. That's an amazing statement. By what authority do you come and do these things? Yahweh said. That is all authority. It's the source of everything. Because Yahweh was used to speak of the Lord so much, and Moses was given such a unique revelation, turn to Exodus 6. <coughs> it is very possible that the word Yahweh was in use before God spoke this. It's very possible because we see, like Abraham came off of the mountain. And when Abraham came off of the mountain, he spoke about Isaac. And when he spoke about Isaac being saved and said, On this mountain the Lord will provide, he called him Yahweh Yireh. So the word Yahweh very well may have been in use. But listen to what God says to Moses about this. This would be in the 6th chapter and 2nd verse. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. That word is a tetratomagron. It is a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It stands for Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Moses had a revelation of God that surpassed that of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew him as a God who would provide. They knew him as a God who was enough for any situation. But Moses was learning about him in an even deeper experiential way. Come on now, who in here knows who Bo Jackson is? Mm. You know, Bo Jackson, you grew up in the same era that I did, some of you. 
240 pounds. He ran the fastest 40 that had ever been clocked up to that time. It was an amazing thing. He could hit a baseball. He could run a football. Some of you saw him run over Brian Bosworth on the 20-yard line. It ended his career. I mean, humility conquered pride. It was an amazing thing. All of you know lots about Bo Jackson. How many of you know Bo Jackson? See, everybody in here can raise our hand that we know Bo Jackson until we talk about a personal experience where we shook his hand. Moses may very well have known that this God was the self-existent God. He very well may have known his name was Yahweh, but now he was experiencing it in a whole different way. You know why? What is the rest of Exodus 6 about? Look at verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. He was experiencing the salvation that comes from being in contact with this God that met with him on the far side of the desert that didn't need him but desired to save See, we often know Jesus' name. And we know the attributes about Jesus. We were, we were taught when we were little that He's the Son of God, that He rose on the third day. We know those things, but we have not experienced Him on the far side of the desert. We've not had that personal encounter where we felt His saving power and forever our lives belong to Him. And when we've not had that, friends, it's like knowing what Bo Jackson did, but not knowing Bo Jackson. The living God is calling people into a covenant with His name, His authority, His body of work, His reputation, not simply your ability to pronounce it or acknowledge it. Turn with me to Genesis 9. Is that okay? It's an easy book to find, right? How many of you know where to go if I told you to turn to Bereshit? Because that's what Jesus called it. He called the book of Genesis Bereshit. It means in the beginning. It's Hebrew. It was good of us to rename all the books of the Bible, wasn't it? And to make all the names so much more pronounceable. If we're going to change the name of Jesus and Moses from Moshe to Moses, from uh, from Yeshua to Jesus, why did we not take on some of these harder names? Like Melchizedek, really? We could have just called him Mel's Diner, right? Sent a sheriff, we could have just said Snack and a Rib. I mean, there's so many things we could have done. Why did we stop there? I mean, I don't know what to say. It's not this way in every language. Apparently, King Jimmy, I'm going to change his name since he changed everybody else's name. <laughs> Apparently, King Jimmy likes some names and others. Did you know that the word James does not appear in the Greek text or the Hebrew text at all? Ever? Jesus didn't have a brother named James. He had one named Yaakov. Yaakov was close enough to James, if you're the king, to rename the book. Didn't that strike you as supremely arrogant? Yes. yes. It does me too. But, I mean, if you like, we could, you know, have a translation according to King Eric. No? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. I can't write English language, much less these. In Genesis 9, we find a prophecy about a name. And this is an important prophecy. Uh, look at verse 26. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan 
be his slave. What an interesting thing. Can you imagine that Darren is Father Noah for a moment? And he's got a few kids, right? So the first one comes out, and he's not going to name him CJ. He's going to say, hey, your name's Ham. Ham means hot. Where are you, CJ? Would you like that? We can call you hotness. You know? <laughs> hey, man, what's your name? <clears throat> hot. <laughs> Names had to do with your authority, character, body of work, reputation. Sometimes they were prophetic. Obviously, a baby's not hot. But you're naming your child what you believe God has called them to be. Hence words like Judah, praise of God. Right? Gabriel, one who stands in the presence of God. Eric, a Viking. <laughs> All I can say is we did not know then what we know now. <laughs> Although there were years where that seemed correct. <laughs> and then we move on to Japheth. Japheth's name means he widens. <laughs> Isn't that great? Like Japheth lived at a buffet. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. This is what Japheth meant. But the one that confuses me is Shem, because Shem means name. What's his name? Name. No, well, I mean, this is like a Monty Python's kid. No, really, what's his name? Name. You know, who's on first? His name means name. Hey, what's his authority? What's his function? Function. In fact, in naming him name, it's kind of like he doesn't have a name, isn't it? Because there would be one name. There would be one name that would bring everybody into earth on one of two categories. You would either come into the tent of this name and live under it like our children grew up under that talit, or you would be the slave of the name. But there would not be a third option. You would either come into the name, or you would be a slave of the name. You would either be the wheat being gathered into the barn, or the winnowing fork would cause you to be the chaff. It would be burned up in a quenchable fire. There would only be two categories of people. Those who had met the God of the name and those who were reduced to servitude because they did not want to enter into the authority, character, body of work of the God of Israel. The name, the Hashem, was an important thing. Turn with me to Exodus 20. How many of you would like a New Testament church? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you read about the book of Acts, it's pretty powerful, isn't it? A New Testament church. What is this man doing reading only from the Older Testament? Aren't we in the New Testament age? Well, it's an amazing thing. In the New Testament age, you know the only Bible they had to read? The Older Testament. Where do you think they got this revelation? It was not until the year 200 that the New Testament canon of Scripture was, was canonized. It was floating around as letters that Hebraic men wrote to people who did not know to explain what they were reading. The Older Testament is the first floor of the building. And yes, the Newer Testament is the capstone, and it is beautiful. But you cannot get to the second floor without having started on the first floor. You want to know why our scholars don't understand the book of Revelation? Because they don't understand the book of Exodus. You want to know why? Such, such uh, crazy doctrines as gold dust and angel wings and dog barking and every ridiculous thing flows through churches. Because they have severed the roots to the first floor of the building. 
if you just focus on a single facet in 66 books, you do not understand the totality of what God is trying to do. So in this church, we're trying to return to a foundation and build upon it, the same foundation that the apostles left, a correct understanding of our king and his kingdom. Today, all we do is talk about going to heaven. Jesus spoke of heaven coming to us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He spoke of these things, and his audience understood it. They didn't like his method. They didn't understand the way in which he was bringing it about, but they were looking for a literal kingdom on earth. One that the prophets had told them would cause the natural order of things to be restructured, wolf to lay down with lamb, children to be able to play with cobras. They were looking for this. In the book of Acts, when Jesus is about to ascend, and he's talking to him about the Ruach HaKodesh, the power, the dunamos, dynamite power of God. They said, you at that time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He didn't say, no, silly goose. Just believe on me and you'll go to heaven. He didn't say that. In fact, you, you don't find that phrase anywhere in the Bible. Although I will give you, if you're in love with Jesus and you die this moment, you are in heaven, you are in the presence of God. Of course, you will return with him, have a resurrected body and rule and reign this earth. This is what the Bible teaches. Instead, all he said to him was, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. In other words, these things will happen, but you don't get to dictate the pace. Peter said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness, but he's merciful, desiring that we would repent. He gives us time to come around. After all, our culture was not built by God. Our constitution was not written by God. Our political leaders did not come off of a mountain with God. I know you can say amen to that. Amen. But theirs did. And given all of those advantages, still the vast majority missed it. I'm sure, though, that our televangelists, purple-haired people in their strange golden thrones on TV, I'm sure that they've got it all right for us. How could he say that? Because it is so absurd, how can you not say it? What is being called the faith of our Lord is so absurd, it has become a parlor trick. Amen. We're little better than Constantine who rushed people through rivers and declared them Jesus. Declared them Christians. We just hold the stadium and if you had a warm fuzzy for a few seconds, you're good for eternity. Really? Walked in a devil, walked out a devil, lived like a devil, but you're going to inherit the kingdom? I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Michael's mother is here. When he got born again, could you tell? If your mama can't tell that you got born again, you're not. You're not. There's not a fundamental nature change. Then you're not born again. Then we do this beautiful thing. Jen, would you like to go to Disney World? I mean, would you like to go to Disney World? Because if you want to go to Disney World, you just accept Jesus. I'm in heaven. I was talking about the same place. I mean, you want to go to heaven? Because if you want to go to heaven, just accept Jesus. Really? When did you ever hear the gospel presented that way? <laughs> ever. The gospel was, pre was presented as repent. The kingdom is at hand. Not if you want to go to a beautiful place, just accept Jesus. What if Jesus won't accept you? How could he say that? Well, John the baptizer sent people away who had not shown fruit of repentance. He wouldn't allow them to be baptized. He said, you vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? See, we need to know a little bit about the authority, the character, the body of work of our God that we're calling His name. 
He doesn't just accept anything. He'll accept you wherever you are if you will change to whatever He says. He will accept you if your answer is yes and you don't know His question yet. He'll accept you if you have been in the desert so long, now that you've met the self-existent one, you would do anything He says. He will not accept you if His word is still optional to you. He will not accept you if you still pretty well think you're a good old boy who's running your life just fine. He will not. In Exodus 20, look at verse 22. The Lord said to Moshe, tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Man, I've given you my name. Don't think you can make an image of me. <coughs> you know why God didn't want an image made of him? He was going to make the only image of him that would ever be made. And you're sitting next to them. Amen. We are the image of God. Amen. And the perfect image of God is Yeshua. Amen. The Messiah. Amen. The fullness of the deity. The visible image of the invisible God. He didn't want an image made of them because he had already made 6.2 billion of them. You're sitting next to them. That's an empowering thought next time. Your wife says, uh, do I still look pretty? You know? Yeah. And you look divine. <laughs> no one named Shem Shem because it was not important what his name was what he represented was the name of God it has a certain 1980's video to it though you remember when we used to say word <laughs> it's saying something. I don't know what it's saying because it's just a word. It's not a specific word. It's not a word about, but it's a word. It kind of became a term of agreeance, you know? Shem, when Jews say Hashem, they mean all that God is, but we do not feel adequate to say. That's what they mean. Blessed be the name, they say. <laughs> Blessed be He, they say. Because they don't feel like they have adequate descriptors to describe just how awesome he is. And Jesus spoke like that. They said, is it true you're the Messiah? He said, I am he. <laughs> he spoke like a Jew because he's the king of the Jews. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings, your sheep and goat and your cattle. Whenever, wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. So then there was this idea. There was the idea that the name was the character of God. And that the name, where it was honored, God was. Wherever you honored the name, God was. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Wherever God's name is honored, he is. If medieval Europe had understood that, then one church would not have held the whole world hostage, would they? Mm -hmm. Selling the sacraments. Amen. Wherever his name is honored. Deuteronomy says in the 12th chapter, the 5th verse and the 11th, I will show you the place that my name will dwell. They were waiting for a time in which God would say, my character, my body of work, who I am, is represented in this place right here. By the time we get to Kings, the first, first Kings, chapter 9, 
and we get to Chronicles. They have built a building. A building that was supposed to house the name of God. What that must have been like. The God that we can't conceive of, He's so big. The God we can't make a picture of because He's undefinable. The God who is the raw essence of everything has got a house. They celebrated it. They were excited about it. The way some Christians get about their churches. Did you know nowhere in the New Testament is a building referred to as a church? Not anywhere. That is a completely Western concept. The church 100% of the time, bar none, it's not even arguable, it's not a subject of debate, is the people. And yet somehow or another we become convinced that God dwells in a structure. We think that it's about the container, it's about the contents of the container. Come on now, are you hearing me? We tend to think that it is about the container and it's about the contents. But this is not only dealing with church buildings. You know what else it's dealing with? You. Remember Moses' question? Who am I? He's asking about the container, and the Lord is trying to deal with it about the contents. He said, you tell them, I sent you. See, we get our eyes on our flesh. We get on our eyes on our fleshly things. How many of you remember that Jesus said that he would tear down the temple, not one stone would stand on another? If he had been an American pastor, what he would have done was said, what we'll do, friends, is we'll have a new building project. We'll add on a new wing. Everybody likes Starbucks? Then we'll throw a Starbucks in the temple. You want a playland for your children? We will put a playland for your children. You don't want to get out of your bed and come to the temple? I will bring a big screen TV to your house and give you a way to tithe online. Jesus said, let's tear down the container. You can strike it down because it was never about those stones and it's never been about this flesh. It's always been about the name dwelling in them. Friends, we don't need big church buildings. You know why they had big church buildings in the New Testament? Because they met from house to house for a while. Do you know the only big church buildings mentioned? <coughs> They met in synagogues because they were there. And when they couldn't meet in synagogues or there were too many Gentiles that were unwelcome, they rented a hole big enough to seat the people. What was the requirement for the building? Stained glass? Steeples? Padded chairs? No, just one where we can house the church because the building was never the church. The people were the church. Yeah. You know that in this city, Matthew and I met a pastor who is in a competition with a pastor on the other side of the interstate. And they keep building steeples, one higher than the other. It's kind of like we have a New Testament Tower of Babel going on. So that we can build a name for ourselves. And would you be surprised to find out that their names are on their buildings? Come on. Whose name is on your building? Whose name is supposed to be written across your life? Whose name did we start our service by singing? Our lives are supposed to be about His authority, His character, His body of work. His reputation. It has never been about the building or this fleshly container. This is why we meet in warehouses. And if this one gets too small, we'll get a bigger warehouse. But as long as I am pastor, we will never live in a golden or crystal cathedral because God dwells inside of us, not a building. So how did we get that way? 
I think we got that way because we believed our building had a function. In John 2, Jesus goes into the temple, and what did he find them doing? They were selling things. They were changing things. They thought that the function of the temple was to raise money. You'd be surprised to find out that it's openly discussed in pastors' meetings everywhere that the fastest way to raise the offerings in your church is start a building project. They think that the building has a function. Now the people inside the building have a function. The people inside, and do you know what Jesus said it was? Same thing Jeremiah says. You have changed my father's house from a house of prayer for all nations to a den of thieves. He was pronouncing judgment on the container because it was not holding the right contents. It had the wrong function, friends. I wonder how many of our buildings might need to be turned down and how many areas of our life. In Mark, the, the 13th chapter, turn there. As he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones. What a magnificent building. This is when Jesus made his proclamation. Not only did these buildings have the wrong function, they had the wrong appeal. Why do you build a big building with massive stones? Because you're hoping the building will draw the people into it. Friends, do recognize how wrong this is. This is an American capitalism. It's marketing. It is, if I can make things pretty enough, big enough, impressive enough, then everybody will come. Of course, the faith that we are all a part of started by crossing a desert being alone on the most desolate, barren mountain that the world has ever seen and meeting with God and saying, He's more than enough. He exists all by Himself. But we need grand cathedrals to draw people into them. If our hopes are set on our building drawing people in, then they're not set on God, are they? No. To date, we've had exactly one couple that I know of see an advertisement and come to our church. And we didn't mean it as an advertisement. We meant it just as kind of a fun way to let the world know what we were thinking. A couple saw a bumper sticker and talked to somebody at a gas station and visited us. That's exciting. I'm thrilled to death for that. But if what you were relying on is the beauty of your building, the success of your marketing campaign, then how would you know whether you built it or God did? Most of you here would not know that there was a somebody who didn't invite you because the gospel spreads on the shoulders of men. From life to life as men rub shoulders. That's how it works. You are the container for the name of God. By the time we get to Matthew 12, 1 through 8, their heart is expressed. Not only did the building have the wrong function and the wrong appeal, it had the wrong heart. They had somebody greater than that building, somebody greater than the temple, uh, the sixth verse says, standing in their midst and they didn't recognize it. Come on now, have you ever got this? Like, Mandy, where do you go to church? At the time she was here, we were often in a garage, right? Uh... I go to Life Changing Ministries. Oh, good, I may have seen it. I bet you hadn't. <laughs> they walk in and they're like, is this a cult? Why is, it, is this a cult? Because the container 
We haven't even had a chance to look at the contents, but it's got to be a cult because they're in a garage. God himself met with his people in a tent. But we've learned to define our faith by the container, whether speaking of the building or this container. When's the last time you saw a pastor and his wife on a postcard that didn't look like him and Barbie? Mm -hmm. What, God doesn't call ugly pastors anymore? I'm out of luck. <laughs> what happened to no beauty or majesty to draw people to? But the sign of success in America is a bigger building with more people. Of course, by that standard, Jesus is a pretty monumental failure, isn't he? Mm. He had no building. And about 11 people after three and a half years of ministry. How did we get this thing so upside down? Turn with me to John 17. I know. I've been preaching a long time. The same people that built those Colosseum-like, mausoleum-like, buildings have told us that we are not capable of hearing more than an hour of the word. Of course, we're capable of sitting through a four-hour baseball game. With those into extra innings, you just order an extra beer and don't think thing about it. <coughs> but in church, that's got to be done in a more expeditious, expedient fashion. Our culture is warping the gospel into something that it's not. And when you get outside of our culture, in the most cultures in the world, you see a more pure Christianity. One where the people will stay all day and into the night just to have you pray. Because when you pray, they expect something to happen. One where you can break legs and burn down buildings. But they're not dissuaded because they have met the God who exists all by himself and he owns their life. Friends, I want whatever it takes for you. This doesn't rest on our oratory abilities. It doesn't rest upon our musical abilities. It completely rests on whether or not you're interacting with the presence of God in your life. Every day, bread from heaven. You in John 17? Yes. yes. Look at verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and, the, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Skip down to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also that those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. 
we unify by coming under the umbrella of His name. He has a character. He has a body of work. He has an authority, a reputation. He is the God who sees the misery of people. And He does something about it. What would unify the church? Another rock concert? What would unify the church? Maybe a football coach get saved and have an organization? What would unify the church? Maybe some, maybe some famous movie star or athlete. What would unify the church? The character of God will unify the church. I want to tell you the truth about faddish Christianity. The problem is we're trying to unify things that don't mix any more than light and dark or oil and water. Or the vile and the Lord. The unity of the scripture comes when people have submitted themselves to the living God. They've crossed whatever desert He's told them to. They know their great need for Him. And they only want to do the things He does. Do you really care what somebody's end times position is if you're in another country feeding the poor and they're there with you feeding the poor? Do you really care what color the carpet is in their church? Whether they drink fermented or unfermented communion, why? Do you really care about those trivial things that have become the important issues of our time? Syncopated rhythm, no syncopated rhythm, dancing, no dancing. Do you pray in English or pray in other tongues? Do you care about those things if they're solely focused on doing the Lord's work? I say no. All of those things are for people that have the time that accumulates when you will not do the Lord's work to sit and debate. <clears throat> Don't misunderstand me. I love the Word. So I have more than one opinion about almost every subject that I've mentioned. But all that is important is that we honor the name. When we say Jesus, it means Yahweh's saves. When we say we love Jesus, it cannot just be that He saved you. It has to be that He wants to save the next one too. Amen. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll close. Them. Well, I've got you on your feet. Examine the first five chapters of Acts. You'll find in Acts 2, in Acts 3, in Acts 4, and in Acts 5. They preached the name of Jesus. And if they were beaten in Acts 5.41, they counted it an honor if they were worthy of suffering for the name. This is not simply letters arranged as a pronunciation. It is the association with the character, with the body of work, with the reputation of God. To be a Christian is to be associated with God's character. His character, 